1 Samuel chapter 24, and reading verses 8 through 15. Just keep in mind the cave incident where uh, Saul could have lost his life if David did not have integrity. David also arose afterward, went out of the cave, and called out to Saul, saying, My Lord, the king! And when Saul looked behind him, David stooped with his face to the earth and bowed down. David said to Saul, Why do you listen to the words of men who say, Indeed, David seeks your harm? Look, this day your eyes have seen that the Lord delivered you today into my hand in the cave, and someone urged me to kill you. But my eye spared you, and I said, I will not stretch out my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. Moreover, my father, see, yes, see the corner of your robe in my hand. For in that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you, know and see that there is neither evil nor rebellion in my hand, and I have not sinned against you. Yet you hunt my life to take it. Let the Lord judge between you and me, and let the Lord avenge me on you. But my hand shall not be against you. As the proverb of the ancients says, Wickedness proceeds from the wicked, but my hand shall not be against you. After whom has the king of Israel come out? Whom do you pursue? A dead dog? A flea? Therefore, let the Lord be judge and judge between you and me, and see and plead my case, and deliver me out of your hand. Father God, we thank you for the boldness that only you could create in David. We thank you for the integrity and the other character issues that only your spirit uh, could uh, bring into us. And it is our desire that Christ Jesus would live in us so that with Paul we could testify that the life that we now live, we live not by our own strength, but by Christ living it through us. Father, take these words that I am to speak, that you have laid upon my heart, and I pray that you would quicken them to our hearts and help each one of us to grow up into you in all things, to be strengthened in the inner man, and, Father, to go out and to do exploits for you that we could not do in our own strength. We love you. We continue to worship as we listen to your word. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. What is it that you pursue in life? That's the question that we're going to be looking at today. And I'm not talking about what things are you involved in, as Rodney alluded to. It's so easy for us to get busy, even religious things to be involved in. Uh, if you look at David and Saul, uh, you might think that uh, they were pursuing the same thing because they're involved in very similar things. Uh, Saul's trying to survive, and David is trying to survive. Saul kills uh, Philistines, David kills Philistines. Saul ate breakfast that morning, David ate breakfast that morning. I mean, if you look at it from an outward perspective, you might think they're pursuing the same things. And even on the story that we just read here, uh, you might think, okay, there's some incidental differences, maybe personality differences that are there, and not realize this is something that flows from within, the difference between Saul trying to kill a rival king, David refusing to kill a rival thing. But we're not looking at the outward actions today. We're not saying, what things are you involved in? How many ministries have you added into your life? The question is, what do you pursue in life? 
in the days that were leading up to this and some of the psalms that David was writing, it's very, very clear that David pursued God with all of his energies. Let me give you an example from a psalm. He says here, Oh God, you are my God. Early will I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh longs for you in a dry and thirsty land where there is no water. And in that same psalm, he says even when he's in bed, he's seeking after the Lord. And he says, my soul follows close behind you. He was pursuing God so tightly that the Hebrew word there indicates that it's, it's almost like he's clinging to him. You know, as he's running after God, he's holding on to God's uh, clothing. And so God was David's chief goal in life. God was his treasure. God was David's passion, the thing that he pursued and chased relentlessly. And that vision gave him a perspective on life that Saul had almost completely lost. Saul pursued a whole series of things that were lesser than God and that left him really unsatisfied. And in, in many ways, he reminds me of Solomon when Solomon was backslidden. And uh, he wrote the uh, book of Ecclesiastes after he came back to the Lord. But uh, he began his life just like Saul did, pursuing after God, doing what Ecclesiastes says is living all of life under heaven, under God's throne room. But over time, Solomon's vision began to shift from heaven to earth, and his treasure began to be shifted from heaven to earth until finally, just about everything that he engaged in was engaged in under the sun, and it all was vanity of vanities, he said. It was worthless. It was empty. It was meaningless. And I think if you look at those, uh, the book of Ecclesiastes with those two phrases in mind, there's other keys of interpretation, but under heaven... That means under God's throne room versus under the sun, a lot of it will come to life and make more sense. Because if, the, if your day-to-day -day living, the highest thing that's in your thoughts is the physical sun that you can see, then you're a humanist even if you're a Christian. Even if you're a Christian, you are a humanist. And Ecclesiastes tries to convince you that everything under the sun is vanity, meaningless, it's going to leave you empty. But that same book tells us if you fear God, if you keep his commandments, if you're living by his power, the very things that this book has said is vanity. Everything is vanity. In fact, let me list those out for you. Um, here's the things that he said were utterly meaningless and empty. See if I can find them here somewhere. Um, power, riches, work, physical pleasures, wisdom, achievements, family, sunsets, and food. He said all of those things were meaningless, but now all of those things are things that he could rejoice in and had meaning once he had regained his perspective of seeing them as under heaven. So the very same things that are meaningless can be... So it's not what we're doing. It's not those outward activities. It's our perspective on life. Are we seeing it under heaven or under his throne? And I see the same contrast between Saul and David here. Verse 14 describes Saul's most important goal in life, basically to survive and to pass on his throne to his children, which involves killing David. His most important goal in life, David, with one sweep of his hand, says, you know, it's rubbish. It's like a dead dog. It's like a flea. It's insignificant. 
me, what would you think of if your chief goals, the things that you are spending all of your energies on, are said to be a carcass, uh, you know, as significant as a flea? Uh, it would not make you feel very good. Now, in contrast, even though it looks like David has lost everything, he has not. He has everything because his life is hidden in God. And in verse 15, you see that his pursuit is totally different from Saul's. Saul's pursuits leave Saul filled still with fear, with insecurities. Even if he had killed David, he still would have those insecurities with him. Whereas David, he sought God's presence, God's strength, God's favor, God's protection. Uh, in short, he was seeking God himself. And even though I've touched on these verses in the last sermon, we were looking at the conscience, I want to go over some of these verses again and look at the contrast between pursuing God and pursuing dead dogs. First, supernatural courage. You read the Psalms that David wrote in the weeks leading up to this, right around this period, and you realize David, over and over, was given supernatural courage. Courage that you would not expect him to have. Now, he could have continued to hide out in the cave here, and uh, because Saul had already been in that cave, they're probably not going to go back in and investigate. He probably would have been okay, but he doesn't do that. Take a look at uh, verse 8. David also arose afterward, went out of the cave, and called out to the soul, saying, My Lord, the King. Okay, this might have seemed like a bad move, but I believe that it was um, making a bold gamble that if he could go out very quickly, confront the king about his, what he is doing, and very, very quickly outline the evidence of his innocence before the 3,000 men. He could shame Saul into pulling back, and it could have backfired on him, but it was a well-executed uh, gamble that paid off. Now, you may disagree with that, but whatever you think that David's intent is on this, here is the main point. It took courage to do that. It really took courage. The more you bask in the presence of God, as David did in the Psalms that were written during this period, the more courage that you are going to gain. David wrote Psalm 27 in the wilderness, and that's a psalm, by the way, that has given courage and encouragement to so many people who have gone through difficult times. But in that psalm uh, that talks about this courage that he, that, that he has, it gives a number of secrets to that, but the chief secret was his pursuit of God. His pursuit of God gave him supernatural courage. He ends the psalm saying, Wait on the Lord, be of good courage, and He shall strengthen your heart. Wait, I say, on the Lord. So do you have anxieties or discouragements? I would just say keep pressing into God. The, these, these things that we're going through, I'm going to give you an apologetic, as it were, as to why you ought to pursue God, why it's worthwhile. Every one of these points we're going through are reasons why it's worthwhile. Okay, it's a one-point sermon. Pursue God, and I'm going to give you a whole bunch of reasons why you ought to do that. Okay, the second thing that letting go of the world and clinging to the Lord enabled David to do was to honor those who didn't deserve to be honored. Verse 8, saying, My Lord, the king. And when Saul looked behind him, David stooped with his face to the earth and bowed down. He is showing respect to a person who didn't deserve to be respected. 
God may be calling some of you to show respect to people that don't deserve it. And when you think about it, it just grates on you. Yeah, I can't. He didn't deserve that, you know, or she didn't deserve that. And, and it may grate on you. But if you switch your focus away from that person to God and you say, Lord, I'm not doing this for that person there. I'm doing this because you've commanded it. And this person belongs to you, and I want to relate to them the way you are calling me to relate to them. Suddenly, it can become a gift. And the greater the sacrifice, and the more grating it would be to do it for that person, now it becomes a greater gift of love that the Lord receives from your hand. So pursuing God helps us to change our perspective on the things that are not very pleasant to be engaged in. Thirdly, Pursuing God kept David from self-deception. I want you to contrast David and Saul. Uh, We'd seen earlier that David had been given advice from his friends that they thought, you know, this is the way God wants you to, 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 to do. But he refused, as attractive as their advice was, because it would get rid of his problems and his pain very, very quickly. As attractive as it was, he ignored their advice because it was not biblical. Now take a look at verse 9 in contrast. David said to Saul, Why do you listen to the words of men who say, Indeed, David seeks your harm? Why would Saul be willingly deceived by these men? So many times in the past, David had just shown himself to be loyal, that he did not have Saul's harm in in his mind. Naivete and deception come because we have embraced a wrong reference point. It has nothing to do with IQ. I've known some people with pretty high IQ who do incredibly stupid things. And they do stupid things over and over again. So it doesn't have to do with IQ. Common sense is not the reference point to help us uh, to be barred from self-deception. Scripture is. It's not psychology. It's not sociology. It's not any other point of human wisdom. It is Scripture that is the reference point. Uh, While other things may be true, only Scripture is truth. Jesus said, thy word is truth. He didn't say thy word is true. If we say thy word is true, what are we doing? We're making our mind the final arbiter, aren't we? We're saying, yeah, I've evaluated the Scripture, and yeah, I think it's true. We're the judges of the Scripture rather than the other way around. Thy word is truth means that the Scripture is what we are submitting ourselves to. It is the final standard by which everything is judged. By the way, this was the the temptation that Satan gave to Adam and Eve in the garden. Well, first of all, to Eve. God had already said that in the day that they eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil they would surely die. It was not going to be blessing. And so that should have settled the question because God's word is truth. But what Satan was trying to do is to get Eve to think, I want, why don't you judge this for yourself, you know, to see if God's word is true or not, to make her mind independently be reasoning and evaluating, testing the word of God. That's exactly what his temptation was. And, uh, and uh, in effect, he was saying, you know, really, does it make sense that such a beautiful tree, such good-looking fruit that looks just like some of the other fruit that's in this garden is really going to be that dangerous? Her mind was the judge. 
And all deception in the 6,000 years since then has come because we have traded God as the ultimate reference point for something in creation. So if you want to avoid deception, you've got to be in the Word. You've got to be pursuing God in His Word. Verse 10 shows that pursuing God as your goal gives you God's perspective on tough, tough situations. Look, this day your eyes have seen that the Lord delivered you today into my hand in the cave, and someone urged me to kill you. But my eye spared you, and I said, I will not stretch out my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's uh, anointed. David had to make an instantaneous decision in that cave. He didn't have time to whip out his Bible and to start studying it and say, okay, what should I do in this situation? No, he had to make a very quick decision. And it was a tough decision. Just like Satan gave Eve all kinds of pragmatic reasons as to why eating that forbidden fruit was okay, David's advisors gave him their good reasons, pretty good-sounding reasons as to why Doing the forbidden thing would be a good thing for him to do. And um, just like Satan, they told David what they thought God wanted. Now, how do we know what God wants? You've probably all seen the bracelets that are in your uh, bulletins there that have uh, WWJD. What would Jesus do? And over the last 20 years or so that that's been around, I have been absolutely astonished at the answers that Christians have given to various questions on the Internet. You know, as we've looked, they have a question that comes up, and what would Jesus do? Well, you know, I sort of think that Jesus would do such and such. They're they're evaluating it independently in their own heads, right? And, And that's what was going on here with these people. You know, some others might say, no, I think Jesus would be real nice. And these people are saying, no, I think Jesus would wax all. I think you need to go ahead and do it. But they were reasoning independently. Instead of WWJD, it needs to be WDSS. What does Scripture say, right? That's concrete. He's already told us what he thinks. We don't have to be guessing inside of our heads. So when I'm talking about pursuing God, I'm not talking about pure mysticism unanchored from the Bible. I'm talking about WDSS. That's why I got a circle with a cross through it on that picture there. It's after the hard, hard work of developing a biblical worldview, which I hope every one of you young people is working at, working hard at, that you're going to begin to have the anchor points to make those instantaneous decisions when they come along. The fifth thing that this will do is to keep you from running ahead of the Lord. Now, that makes sense, doesn't it? If you're pursuing the Lord, you're following Him, right? You're not running ahead of Him. And yet this is a temptation. In fact, verse um, 10 here that I just read shows the temptation to run ahead of the Lord's timing. His friends are urging him to kill Saul. I mean, that's the quick, easy way to get rid of your pain and of your suffering. Somebody might be advising you, here, the quick way to do it, get a divorce. Or the quick way to do it is whatever the the question might be. But his friends were helping him to run ahead of the Lord. David developed patience. By the way, impatience is a killer of faith. Impatience, running ahead of the Lord, it is not trusting on God. David learned how to develop patience in this situation by waiting on the Lord every day of his life in devotions and in all of the other things. You read the Psalm. Well, I just finished reading from Psalm 27. He ends with this summary, wait on the Lord. And he says again, wait on the Lord. 
Okay, no impatience, but it's pursuing after God that enabled him to do that. Psalm 56, uh, which was written back in chapter 22, I believe it was. Psalm 56 connects this waiting on the Lord with his handling of Saul. So instead of impatience, what we need to do is every day be so in tune with, Lord, I want to walk in what you are calling me to do. I don't want to run ahead of you. I want to be following you. I want to be pursuing you. Verse 11 gives a sixth benefit of pursuing God. Uh, Such pursuit of God kept David from falling into sin and gave him boldness to confront sin. So verse 11. Moreover, my father, see. Yes, see the corner of your robe in my hand, for in that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you, know and see that there is neither evil nor rebellion in my hand, and I have not sinned against you, yet you hunt my life to take it. And he goes on, he gives some rather sharp rebukes, saying, the Lord judge you, you know. This is a rather bold thing uh, for David to be doing uh, here. Now, sometimes confronting sins in other people is even more difficult than acknowledging sins in ourselves. Confronting sin in a king is even more difficult. And confronting sin in a king who's after you, who's mad at you, <laughs> boy, that's, that seems almost suicidal. And yet David's pursuit of God enabled him to see life clearly enough where he could call sin, sin. Some of you fathers are timid about calling sin, sin in your children's lives, in your wife's life or calling sin, sin in your own life. And yet God calls us to not live in the fear of man, but to live in the fear of God. How do we do that? How, do we, how does the pursuit of God enable you to do this? I think Vance Havner said this very well in a book that he wrote on preachers and how preachers ought to act in life. He said, when you are accustomed to standing before God, kings don't matter much. Big potatoes are just small potatoes when you have been standing in the presence of the Most High. I remember when I was a kid, there was um, one bully. I was in the school for one year. It was a government school. And, and uh, there was this bully and his gang that I was just scared to death of. I've been beat up enough times by this gang that every night I would find a different way home from school, hoping not to run into them. But I remember one time walking with my dad, and you know what? I happened to see that bully. I was not in the least bit nervous or afraid around that bully because my dad was with me. And in the same way, I've been in some pretty dangerous situations in other countries, but because I've had the sense of God's presence with me, he's given me a boldness. I just have not had fear of these dangerous uh, things that uh, that I had been confronted with. The seventh benefit of pursuing God is that God becomes the most real thing in your life. When Peter was looking at the waves, the waves became the most real thing in his life. When Peter was looking at the Lord Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ became the most real thing in his life. You know, Elijah, when he was up on Mount Carmel, God was the most real thing to him. It wasn't cloudless sky. You might think, oh boy, do I dare pray for rain? (laughs) There's not a cloud in the sky. That was not the most real thing. 
the, the powerful King Ahab was not the most real thing in his life. The, the fact he was outnumbered with all of these priests of Baal was not the most real thing. God was, and it enabled him to do miracles on that, night, on that day. But the very next day, his focus was so intensely on, on the hatred that Jezebel had for him that he ran. His fear killed his faith. Now, how did God minister to Elijah in a way that would enable Elijah to get past this? It's very interesting. You, you need to read it sometime. It's in 1 Kings chapter 19. And God sends him some sermon illustrations, so to speak. It says, A great and strong wind tore into the mountains and broke the rocks in pieces before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. And after the fire, a still small voice. Now, which is more real? A hurricane or a still small voice? Well, if you've never learned to pursue after God, the hurricane's obviously going to be the most real thing uh, in your life. When you have a hurricane doing odd things like this one did, tearing rocks apart. I've never seen a hurricane tear rocks apart, but this one did then that's going to become the most real thing in your life. But it was not the most real thing. Uh, that was God's point. He wasn't in the wind. Next came the earthquake. That was not the most real thing. Next came the fire. And then last of all came that small, still small voice, and the Lord was in that. And when you've got the Lord quietly, quietly with you, even the biggest things of life begin to shrink. What God was showing Elijah was that Elijah had allowed himself, when he was looking at Jezebel, he was allowing the things that his physical vision was seeing as huge to become the most real thing in his life. And God was saying, look, you focus on me. It doesn't matter that I'm invisible, that I'm almost inaudible. I am the most real thing for you. And if you are focused on me, those other things do not matter. Okay, that's the lesson he was saying. Live by faith, Elijah. And he restored Elijah to living by faith. And that's what's going on in verse 12. Saul's soldiers probably were laughing at David. You know, David, in effect, is saying, you are in real danger, Saul. And they're thinking, what? <laughs> you know, we could kill him anytime we wanted to kill him. And yet that's exactly what David is saying. You are in serious danger, Saul. And he didn't care what other people thought about him. Take a look at verse 12. Let the Lord judge between you and me, and let the Lord avenge me on you, but my hand shall not be against you. When God is real to you, you don't have to take revenge, and you don't have to fix providence as if God is making mistakes in your life. No, what, if God is real to you, you are going to begin taking people to the courtroom of heaven. And if you're not continually taking people to the courtroom of heaven, God is not the most real thing in your life. If you're not praying, God's not the most important, uh, important or real thing in your life. Pursuing God gave David integrity. Verse 13, as the proverb of the ancient says, wickedness proceeds from the wicked, wicked but my hand shall not be against you. Uh, one version put it this way, one wrong begets another. But David will not do wrong simply because Saul did wrong. Pursuing God kept David from pragmatism, even though if he had assassinated Saul, 
I think a lot of people could have excused him. Self-defense, you know, not, not a big deal. He did the right thing even when other people were saying to do something different. Why? Because his goal was on pleasing God. Do you want to be known as a man or a woman of integrity? If you do, you've got to pursue God like David did in the Psalms. You can so easily lose your integrity when your passion is to pursue the things of this earth. If that's your passion, there's going to come up opportunities to lose your integrity just like that in order to fulfill your goal. Verse 14, after whom has the king of Israel come out? Whom do you pursue? A dead dog? A flea? David doesn't have to puff himself up. He's quite comfortable with seeing himself as nothing. In fact, when you are walking in the presence of God Almighty, you feel like falling on your face. You feel like nothing. So pursuing God gives you perspective in life. It gives you humility. And with that humility, the Lord raises us up. The last point under David is that pursuing God gave David a Hebrews 11.1 kind of a faith. David said, Therefore, let the Lord be judge and judge between you and me and see and plead my case and deliver me out of your hand. Now, if any atheists were watching this, they would have thought that David's words were rather naive. But these are not empty words because David can see something nobody else can see. He is using nuclear weapons and calling down God's judgments upon Saul. And I want to distinguish David's faith with three things that are often counterfeited with faith. The first counterfeit is hope. Now, hope's a good thing. Okay, faith, hope, and love. Faith is a good thing. But it is not the same thing as faith. And as long as you are only praying in hope, you're never going to get an answer to your prayer requests. Guaranteed. For years, I prayed in hope not with the confidence God was going to answer. In fact, I'd get up from my prayers with the same anxiety and assumption God's not answered my prayer. And I remember the switch. I was in a study in my last church, and I remember the time when I began to realize, you know what? I am calling God a liar. I am not taking God at His word. And on wisdom, he said, he gives to all men. If you lack wisdom, let him ask of God. He gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given, but let him ask in faith. Don't be, you know, driven to and fro by the waves of the wind. I remember that day being convicted. I have not been praying in faith. And so I prayed completely differently. And thank God, even though I didn't feel any different, thank God for the wisdom. And from that day forward, I have been able to pray in faith for wisdom, and the Lord has come through every single time. Now, that's not to say I pray on everything in faith. There are some things I still am praying and hope in. I'm growing into those areas, but the Lord is causing me more and more to walk in faith. But that's the first counterfeit. We pray in hope instead of praying in faith. And we're going to be seeing in a little bit how David's uh, had a, an absolute faith, a, a reason for that faith. The second and third counterfeits are sight and presumption. Now, I want you to turn with me, if you would, to Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1, because this is such a concise, wonderful definition of, uh, uh, of faith. Second counterfeits are sight and presumption. Uh, one of my teachers in Bible school used to teach that faith was a blind leap in the dark. Now, he was an evangelical, but that's a liberal definition of, um, of faith. 
Uh, but he's, he pointed to this verse and he said, no, it's evidence of things not seen. So if it's not seen, it is a leap in the dark. But let me read this for you, and I want to show you how that's actually not the case. Now, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. It is not leaping without knowing. In fact, the two Greek words that are used there are the polar opposites of that. Two legal terms. First legal term used there is hypostasis which means reality, substance, or title deed, as it's so frequently translated in the papyri literature. Now, let's think about that title deed idea, which is my preferred translation of that, but substance or reality is good as well. When you buy a house, you make an offer on that house, but until that offer is accepted, until the title deed is signed over to you, you don't have it. Now, the time leading up to your taking possession of the title deed is the time of hope. You hoped you're going to get that house, but it could always fall through. You don't know whether you're going to get that house for sure. But once you get that title deed in your hand, you are confident. Even if you've never seen the house, you may not believe it, but Kathy uh, actually signed and purchased the house before she'd even seen it, our last house. Uh, it was out in California. And uh, she did it based on the second word, the evidence of things not seen that I had presented to her. And she was quite confident that this would be a house that uh, would work out well for her. But that title deed gives you an absolute assurance. You have this property even if people say you don't own it. You have this property even if people challenge you in court for the right to go into that. You go into courtroom quite confident. I've got the title deed to this property. That confidence is of the essence of faith, according to John Calvin. And so that's the first one. Second Greek word that's used there is evidence. Faith is the evidence of things not seen. And it's talking about court evidence. So imagine yourself to be a judge or uh, even to be on the jury in a court case. And there is a person who has been accused of committing a crime. He says he's innocent. The other person says he's guilty. And you've got a judge. How in the world are you going to judge? You've not been at the scene of the crime. You haven't seen a thing. How can you judge that? Well, you judge it based on the testimony of others, the evidence of things not seen. Now, there's other people who have seen it. They're going to testify for you. But you're, you have not seen it, but you can have confidence based on this good testimony, this evidence of things not seen. So did David have a title deed to surviving this day and being on the throne? Absolutely, yes, he did. God, who cannot lie, promised it in 1 Samuel chapter 16. Did he have evidence of things not seen? He did. In fact, he had better court evidence than we many times will get in a courtroom when we're, we're supposed to be making some kind of a judgment. So you might wonder why God puts you through impossible situations like David was facing. God put David through that to strengthen his faith and to test his faith. And God may very well be testing. Are you pursuing me? Are you trusting me? Do you have a faith in me? Are you willing to bank on that evidence, those scriptures that I've given, the evidence of things not seen? So that's the second counterfeit. The third one, I think, is the most dangerous counterfeit. And that is, so you got the counterfeits, right? Hope, sight, third counterfeit is presumption. 
Now, some people might say David is being presumptuous here. That is ridiculous to be getting out of that cave and to be confronting Saul like this. I don't think that it was presumptuous at all. But there are people who do presume upon God. They're confident about things they have no basis for being confident in. Presumption is not faith. And let me just illustrate this. I had a friend down in South Carolina. I've not seen him in a number of years, and hopefully he doesn't live there still and won't listen to the sermon. But um, He came to me one day. He was all excited about this Name It and Claim It book that, uh, that he had. And he said, I am, I, my faith has the power to create things. And uh, I am going to be claiming, and he had the specific model of car, the color it's going to be and everything. And he said, by faith, I'm going to be bringing this car into existence. Well, I was trying to discourage him from that. You know, if God has promised you a car, yes, you can have faith that uh, you're going to get that. But God had promised no such thing. And over the months, he began to get discouraged that, you know, this was not working like the book had said that it should. It was presumption. It was not... Uh, something that God had promised. Here's the thing. Only God is a creator. We cannot create anything with our faith. Only God can create. All our faith can do is to lay hold of things that He has decreed will happen. Everything that God has decreed is as good as done from the foundation of the world. And what our faith is doing is it's laying claim to that, bringing it into history, so to speak. I remember that verse that says that faith is the title deed of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. It's a plural participle. In the realm of the invisible, they are already in existence. They were determined before the foundation of the world. And this is why Ephesians 2, verse 10, says, We are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand. That's creation. He prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Okay, why can we have faith that we can overcome the besetting sins that we just have struggled and struggled with? It's because God has made those good works and ordained that we should walk in them. And we're not going to let Satan tell us, you can't do it, you can't do it. We're going to say, get behind me, Satan. I can do it. I am stepping into God's decrees by faith. I am laying claim to real things and bringing them into space-time history. So faith, in a sense is the evidence of things, those are the decrees of God, decreed things, bringing those things into historical things. Does that make sense? That's what faith is all about. And David's faith just kept growing and growing because he was pursuing God with all of his heart. God was the most real thing in his life. Saul was different. His vision was dimmed toward heavenly things, and he was driven, 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 perpetually driven by earthly things like the emergency of the previous chapter, and like the continued presence of David as what he thought was a threat to his throne. And Saul's earthbound and time-bound perspective led to six very, very sad situations. First, in verse 9, we see that Saul was constantly swayed by the wrong opinions of those who are around him. Now, that makes sense. If God is in none of your thoughts, then he's not going to be very big on the horizon, the people that are in your vision, that are important to you, they're going to be the ones whose opinions are going to be mattering the most in your lives, in your life. And so your husband's sins are going to loom a whole lot bigger than God will. 
your peers' opinions will loom a whole lot bigger than God's will, and so you're going to constantly be tempted to cave in to your peers' expectations of you. If you're teaching in a university, you know, evolutionary theory is going to loom so big, I'm going to be an idiot if I hold to this. You know, you're going to be tempted to cave in in order to please the academics of the world. So verse 9 deals with Saul elevating the opinions of men around him higher than God's. Second, it made Saul blind to his vulnerability. In verse 10, he has no idea how close to danger and death he really was. He was this close to being killed, utterly unaware of it. You know, Rodney, last uh, week, he, uh, he uh, alluded to the spider, you know, from Jonathan Edwards' uh, sermon, the spider hanging over a flame by a thin, thin little thread, utterly unaware of the danger that is out there. Because Saul was pursuing the things of this life, he becomes unaware of danger on the one hand, he becomes unaware of true security in the other. In verse 11, we see it skewed his judgment about what was most important in life. Saul was consumed with a passion to hand on his kingdom to his sons. That's why he was after David constantly. Fame, success, empire, riches, those things are worthless if you don't have God. They're worthless. In fact, in James Boyce's book, The Call to Discipleship, he gave a very interesting story. He tells about Donald Gray Barnhouse, a very famous Presbyterian preacher in early 1900s. But anyway, he was counseling a woman uh, after the evening service outside the church on the sidewalk. And it was uh, uh, a pretty extended conversation because this woman, she said, I believe in Christ. I want to serve Christ, but I really want fame as well. I really want to succeed in Broadway. And he could tell she's, she's going to be caving in because she doesn't have the principles. He was trying to counsel with her. And at one point in the conversation, she revealed her heart by saying this, well, after I've made it in the theater, I'll follow Christ completely. Barnhouse took a key out of his pocket and he used the key to make a little scratch on the mailbox that was in front of the church. And he said this, that is what God will let you do. God will let you scratch the surface of success He will let you get close enough to the top to know what it is, but he will never let you have it because he will never let one of his children have anything rather than himself. Years later, he met the girl again, and she confessed that that had exactly indeed been the the situation with her life. Uh, She had dabbled in drama enough to be able to get her picture in a national magazine one time, but she had never really made it. And she told Barnhouse... I can't tell you how many times in my discouragement I have closed my eyes and seen you scratching on that postal box with your key. God let me scratch the edges, but he gave nothing in place of himself. And brothers and sisters, your judgment is going to be skewed if you do not pursue him. It is going to be skewed. Anything else in life is pursuing dead dogs unless it's given to God. And Mark 10 says, look, if you, if you give everything, you give your potential spouse, you give your children, you give everything to the Lord. Say, Lord, I'm forsaking them. I'm no longer going to hold on to them. Mark 10 says, God gives those same things back to you 100-fold. 
But if you're pursuing them instead of pursuing God, what does Mark 10 say? Those who are first are going to be made last. You're just not going to enjoy life. You will be made last. Verse 13 is a great proverb of wickedness inevitably coming from the wicked, and it takes God's grace to restrain sin and to produce righteousness. So if you're not pursuing after God, He's the only source of righteousness. Automatically, not only do you not have righteousness, you're going to have wickedness coming up. It just makes sense. If God is the only source of righteousness, what does Paul say? He says, I know that in me, that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells. So if you're not pursuing God, where's the only other source of your actions? It's going to be the wickedness proceeds from the wicked. Now, we've already dealt with verse 14, but a failure to have God constantly in our vision inflates our goals beyond their true significance. See, David just wipes away Saul's goals as worthless. And in the same way, if our ultimate goal is success on our job, it is worthless. If our ultimate goal is getting a a wife, it is worthless. If our ultimate goal is taking herbs and vitamins and exercising our bodies so that we will be healthy, but we're not doing it as a stewardship trust for God, it is worthless. Now, all of those things can be done, Ecclesiastes says, in a way that is worthwhile, that counts for eternity. But it's your perspective that makes the difference. If our goals are not a part of our pursuit of God, they get inflated beyond their true significance. And the last thing that I see in Saul is he was blindly running away from God's love and grace And in his fear and desperation, he was running toward the judgment that verses 12 and 15 guaranteed he was going to receive if he did not repent. Guaranteed it. James Hewitt told the story of a lady who was driving uh, home uh, late one night. And she was on the freeway, a little bit irritated because this semi-truck behind her was so close to her. So she speeds up and he speeds up right after her. She thought, this is ridiculous. So she slows down, but he refuses to pass her. So she speeds up again, he speeds up, she keeps going faster and faster, and it doesn't matter how fast she goes, he's following her. She's starting to get a little bit nervous about this, so she pulls off uh, one of the exits, and she begins to get very scared because he pulls off right after her on her tail. So she whips out and goes onto the main street and is trying to lose him in the traffic, and he is right on her tail. He runs a red light. And by this time, she is almost in hysterics. She whipped into a service station, jumps out of the car. (laughs) Ran into the service station, screaming for help. The truck pulls in to the service station, and he jumps out of the cab, opens up the back door, grabs a man that was in there that he had seen hiding. Apparently, he had seen a rapist get into that car, and he was desperately trying to wave her over. She wasn't noticing that. All she could see is somebody's on her tail. She's running from the wrong person uh, all this time. And this is what Saul had been doing for years. He was running away from what he perceived to be a threat And what he's been pursuing is his security, his kingdom. I've got to have something to hand on to my kids. And these people, all they can think about is taking away my kingdom from me. That's all he could think about. David, God, and all of these people he sees as the enemy. 
And he's running away ultimately from the semi-truck of God's grace. And in the process, what's happened is he has wildly been driving his metaphorical car. He's killed a number of priests of Nob. He's almost killed his son. He's doing desperately anything he can do to get God off of his tail. And you know what? If he had just stepped down from the throne in chapter 13, God would have honored him and said, come to me, Saul. I bless you from doing the right thing. If in chapter 18 he had done the same thing that Jonathan did and said, David, I want you to be on the throne. God would have honored him, but his vision was clouded because of fear, because of suspicion, because of all kinds of things that were going on in his life. Panic made Saul run from the wrong things and pursue, run from the, yeah, just running and and, and pursuing the wrong things. And brothers and sisters, some of you have been running from the voice of God, speaking through the Scriptures, speaking through His people. And I would urge you, just get out of the car and let God deal with your flesh. God cares about you. He loves you. And there are so many things that can keep us from getting out of the car and uh, doing the right thing. For Saul, it was insecurity, fear, earthly aspirations, pride. And part of it was demonic. Remember that demon that was in there? A demon was constantly making him think that everything that really God was saying is your flesh. Oh, it's somebody else's fault. Somebody else's fault. He was constantly diverting attention to other people. But ultimately, his problem came because he stopped pursuing God. And I'm not saying he stopped being religious. He was very, very religious. He stopped pursuing God. And I want to end by challenging each of you to stop pursuing dead dogs and start pursuing the living God. If you get upset with God because of His providences and you start running, you're going to end up with nothing just like Saul did. Your providences may be your spouse, maybe your children, maybe your finances, but let me repeat that. If you get upset with God because of those providences, you're going to end up with nothing just like Saul did. But if you hold on to God as the most important and the most real thing of your life like David did here, then even when times get tough, like they got tough for David, you will be able to respond with faith and joy as David did. Now, I'm not going to promise you that life is a rose garden (laughs) or it's going to be a feather pillow. It is not. There's a lot of hard things in life, but I can promise you, if you will pursue God, you will be able to have that joy indescribable and full of glory. You will be able to have the supernatural love of God. You will be able to see the miraculous taking place in your life. You will be able to see God's presence, His satisfaction and fulfillment. And this was the testimony of George Matheson. I don't know if you've heard of him. He's a very famous preacher and hymn writer in Scotland. But he had every reason to get bitter. Uh, Very early, he had sensed the call of God in his life into ministry, but he was going blind already at the age of 15, and so he redoubled his efforts to try to get through school uh, before uh, he went completely blind. Like David, he could have very easily said, Lord, how come you're calling me into the ministry and taking away the very tools that are necessary for ministry? But he redoubled his efforts. He really tried hard in school. He graduated from the University of Glasgow at age 19, enrolled immediately in seminary, 
But halfway through seminary, he completely lost his vision. It was a, a terrible blow. But his sisters came to the rescue. They helped him finish his studies. They read to him. They helped him write his papers. And that was a huge sacrifice on their part because they had to learn Greek and Hebrew and theology right along with them uh, to help him get through this. So that was the first blow, the, the, the loss of his sight. The second blow was that his fiance broke the engagement and said, I just cannot marry a blind man. And he felt terribly hurt over that. He never got over the hurt. Um, he never did get married uh, again after that. But he did become a very famous, very well-loved preacher in Scotland. Now, at some point during his pastoral ministry, his sister came to him excitedly telling her about her recent engagement and that just opened up the wound again in his life and he's tempted to feel sorry for himself you know that he can't get married but he resisted that and he said no I by faith receive God's love and God's supernatural love came into his life and he penned these words that I think you'll recognize I'm just going to read the first verse of the hymn but it said oh love that will not let me go I rest my weary soul in thee. I give thee back the life I owe, that in thine ocean depths its flow may richer, fuller be. There are a lot of things in life that will let you down. You could lose your spouse. You could lose your kids. You could lose your finances, your house. There's all kinds of things that can let you down. But when you pursue God, you can be assured God will never let you down. You will be held in his matchless love. Let me read you Paul's life goal in Philippians 3. And if you can make Paul's life goal, which was also David's life goal, your own, this will be true of you. Philippians 3. But what things were gained to me, these I have counted loss for Christ. He has said, you know, all of those things is pursuing dead dogs. I'm giving it up. He goes on, yet... Indeed, I also count all things loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ. He is saying everything in life is like a dead dog, a flea, like rubbish, or one translation like dung in comparison to gaining Christ. In verse 10 he says that his one pursuit in life was this, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. Now in verse 12, he admits, I sometimes vacillate between Saul, living like Saul, and living like David. Sometimes I am pursuing the things of this world, but every time he catches himself, immediately he repents, he gets up, and he pursues after Christ again. He says, not that I have already attained or am already perfected, but I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me. So there's a sense in which the one that, G that Paul is pursuing has been pursuing him. The one that Paul lays hold of, clings to, has been clinging to him. And so he goes on to say, Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind, reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And that's what David was doing in this chapter. And I would urge you to stop pursuing dead dogs and to start pursuing the living God with all of your heart.
Amen. Father God, I thank you for every single person in this congregation. Father, some of them are already walking in the glorious liberty of the sons of God. Some of them are already on a daily basis experiencing your joy, indescribable and full of glory. But Father, there are others who are walking in a cloud and long to have that, long to have that for themselves. And I pray, Father, that they would not run from the wrong things and the wrong people and that they would give their flesh over to you and to say, this is my life goal, to know Jesus, the power of His resurrection, the fellowship of His sufferings, to be willing to suffer anything so long as it's with Jesus in fellowship with Him. Father, help this, your congregation, from the youngest to the oldest, to find the significance of life, to step out of vanity, of vanity, all is vanity, and into, Father, the glory, the joy of walking from faith to faith, from strength to strength, from glory to glory by your Holy Spirit. Father, make this a reality for each one. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.